The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Good evening. It is good to be with you. Uh, We'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2 this evening. Before turning uh, our attention to the passage before us, however, I want to make some uh, brief comments about uh, the entire Bible. Uh, there There are consistent themes throughout Scripture. Uh, there are there are there are some overarching stories uh, and and subplots that that go across uh, books that go across from Genesis to Revelation that that transcend the millennia uh, of God's redemptive history that we've experienced so far and and, and take us into uh, eternity uh, and and understanding those overarching themes understanding those broad stories. Uh, can help us understand any one particular story that we look at. Uh, so, so one of those theme, one one such theme that will, will help us this evening is the theme of God dwelling with His people, uh, specifically in a context of worship. But God dwelling with His people in Genesis, we see that God makes man in His image. He makes. He makes human beings for a special relationship with Him. And He puts them in a special garden within a special land in all of the universe. And He has a special communion with them there. He he can walk with them. He has this special relationship that they enjoy in the Garden of Eden. And of course, sin destroys that. It's, it's one of the tragedies of the early parts of Genesis, that, that their sin kicks them out of the garden. They are no longer with God. But of course, in God's gracious plan, he, he has a plan to restore that. And so we see that through the history of Israel and His faithfulness to give them a tabernacle where God will dwell once again amongst His people, to give them the temple uh, where God dwells amongst them. And interestingly, both the tabernacle and temple are filled with garden imagery. And all of this, of course, points to Jesus Christ, to Emmanuel, God with us. God's dwelling is with man as a man. Jesus, he tells us, is the true temple. He is the true temple. Uh, And though he is destroyed, he's raised up three days later. And we learn from Paul that Christ in his victorious place is not only the temple, but also he is building up his people to be the temple. He's building up His people to be that dwelling place of God. And then finally, in Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, we see that there's a majestic temple that's a city, that's a garden, and the angel loudly proclaims, look, behold, God's dwelling place will be with man. 
And that is our hope. And that is, that is our uh, hope for eternity. And it's in light of that story that we turn to 1 Samuel to see, to pick up where we are in Samuel in that saga of answering this question that has been our question since the garden. How can it be that a sinful people can dwell with a holy God? So let's turn, turn and hear God's word for us in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Starting at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that all his sons were, all his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of, Israel, of, the, the, people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For... It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, the young man Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? 
Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will be not an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come and implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. The word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Lord, would you, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, take your word uh, and plant it deep in us. Uh, and would it yield fruit? And would it uh, shape and fashion us uh, into your likeness? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To divide uh, this text uh, this evening, I, I want to, in a sense, make it all application. Uh, the, the division, at least, uh, in the sense of uh, noting three problems that this, that this text addresses. So we have problems, uh, and, and three of these problems that we have uh, that this text addresses are, uh, we take worship too lightly, we overlook God's small provisions, and we forget God's grand purpose. So to divide the text in this way, we'll just look at uh, how it addresses the fact that we take worship too lightly, we overlook God's small provisions, and we forget God's grand purpose. So first, we take worship too lightly. This story warns us about selfish religious leaders, about self-interested, self-serving priests who were doing the same thing. They were taking worship too lightly. Actually, saying they were taking worship too lightly doesn't really capture it. This is a shocking perversion in the house of God in this story. And it's, and it's meant to shock. And it's meant to build to a climax of shock so we actually get the lesser crime first. The lesser crime is that the worshiper is robbed. It's a, it's a potluck crime. Look at, look at uh, verses 12 to 17. The, the priest's servant boy is sent with a fork and dips it in there and takes extra things for the priest. Now, now, the sacrifice described here is one where the priests would have already gotten a portion of the meat, and, and they want extra. So here the Israelite 
faithfully trying to worship God, is, is now in the process of preparing a fellowship meal for his family before the Lord, and the priest is robbing him and interrupting that family celebration. It shows bold thievery in the house of God, thievery from the worshipers of God, and that's the lesser crime. So it builds to this climax of shocking, and it builds to the greater one of they profane God's worship and steal directly from God's portion, directly from the Lord. Before the sacrifice, as they're preparing the sacrifice, the servant interrupts the worship and takes directly from God's portion. And he's even threatening if the faithful Israelite offers a mild complaint of saying, well, wait, wait just a little bit. Like, we, we want to follow the Lord's, the Lord's law here. And they threaten him against it. This is blatant sin. Just imagine your shock if during one of the communion services here at night when we all, we all come forward, uh, the, the person right in front of you in line just took two hands and, and grabbed and gobbled up all, all the communion bread just because they had a hankering for potato matzah. And they just, they just wanted to eat it all. Right? Or, or imagine if they're, if they're, if they're passing uh, the, the plate and the offering and, and someone just grabs a handful of cash and checks. It, it almost seems too, too, too blatant uh, to be real. But this is the picture we get of the kind of perversion that's happening in the, with the priests of this time. They have contempt for the Lord. This is ugly, in-your-face sin. These are indeed worthless men. And they obviously don't know God. They seek their own benefit by taking advantage of God's true worshipers. And it doesn't even stop here. We, we learn in, in, in the next section when we learn more about them that they are, they are committing adultery with the women who are serving in front of the temple, with the women who are, have come close to the tabernacle. They, they aren't just perverting the worship of God. They're polluting the worshipers with a pagan immorality. They are treating Israelite women like pagan cult prostitutes. So keep that in mind as we read in verse 25 that God wants them dead. That the Lord has decided to put them to death. He has handed them over to their sins. They're not going to repent. And the Lord is going to put them to death. He desires to kill them in judgment. And, and that is actually a perfect fit with Hannah's song. If you look back at some of the language in the song right before this story, some of the words, the wicked will be cut off, Hannah prays and sings. The adversaries of Yahweh will be broken to pieces. God's house and priests are polluted and perverted, but the Lord will act. And this reality, this reality that we see, this ugly, shocking story here, is not just one for ancient Israel. This is true today. There are still worthless men in the ministry of God who don't know God. This warning given in this passage applies today. And I, I, could, I could go off on a history of some of the Renaissance popes and things like that, but this is, this is, this is an application that is still true today. And I'm not, I'm not bold enough to name names tonight, but this is a reality. There are preachers who, who become peddlers of God's Word, treating a congregation like their customers who are always right and need to be kept happy. There are, there are elders who might pander 
to the wealthy or the comfortable. Preachers who, and pastors who prey on the weak and the helpless, the vulnerable, and the ashamed, and take advantage of them materially, emotionally, financially, and sexually. Men who twist God's power and promises into some money-making self-help scheme or some motivational speaker platform or even, or even just the pragmatic minister who does the calculus to keep the congregation size up so the offering size stays up. Sex and money are still stumbling blocks for the servants of God. And, th- and this perversion flows from putting self first and God not first. Doesn't even have to be God last. Doesn't have to be that these people become atheists or, or, or some sort of obvious villain. It just comes from not having God first. It comes from putting the God-given tasks that we're given in the service of personal urges, preferences, and passions. And this isn't just something that ministers face. We would all face this. A, a small, small little example that we might see this is how in some Christian college circles, it, beca- it can become a, a strange mating ritual to have a really big Bible uh, or to use really pious phrases. Right? Just, just a small example of, of, of twisting things that should be in the service of God for self, self-service. And, and this isn't all, so just like you don't have to become an atheist or a villain to end up this way, we also see that Hophni and Phinehas are self-deceived. They don't get it. They don't know how worthless they are. They don't know, seemingly, that they don't know God. Because in the coming passage, when they take the ark of the Lord out to battle, it seems like they actually think that God will bless them. They are sadly self-deceived. And we should hear this story and beware of such dangerous motives and self-serving priorities in the church, in ourselves, and especially in the leaders in the church. But the story goes on. The story goes on in giving us this warning and reminding us that we take worship too lightly. That the bold, brash, open, obvious sin and contempt of God is not the only self-interest going on at the tabernacle at this time. Eli is also condemned. Look at verses 22 to 36. We don't know exactly how complicit Eli is in all of this, but we do know that he's fat. You have to love the author of Samuel. He tells it like it is. He's really old. He's really fat. He's really old. He's really, and if he's going to say something, he just comes out and says it. They're worthless men. They don't know God. Right? So we know that he's fat and that he's been fattening himself on the portions of the Lord. So there's at least some kind of tangential benefit that Eli seems to be receiving from his son's wickedness. But we don't need to just guess Verses 27 to 36 make his guilt explicit. God's word makes his judgment clear, and the consequences and punishment will be pronounced and thorough for his whole house. So these two portraits of a, of a perverted priesthood, the portraits of Eli, Eli's sons and Eli himself, should arouse indignation in us and, and put us on guard against anything like it in our churches. 
And again, this isn't just a case of open abuse like Hophni and Phinehas, but also the weak complacency of Eli. And I want to focus for a moment on that weak complacency, the condemnation of him honoring his sons more than honoring God. It's not that Eli doesn't do anything. He offers a true rebuke to his sons. He he warns them gravely against the danger of dishonoring God. He points out that this is a self-destructive wickedness. You're perverting the very means that you might use to ask for forgiveness in perverting the, the temple worship. But Eli stands condemned. Why? It's because although he accurately diagnoses his son's wickedness, he takes no action to remedy it. He is the high priest, and in some sort of preference for his sons, he doesn't clean house. He lets them continue to serve. He doesn't remedy the situation. He doesn't intervene. He only complains. And it seems like he only complains when the scandal gets really bad and spreads. So this should be a warning to us as well, to not value peace above purity in the church, to not value comfort over conformity to God's Word in the church and its worship. Words of complaint aren't enough. If there are self-serving leaders taking advantage of God's flock and perverting the worship, there should be concrete actions. So one small step that we can all take in pursuing the purity and being prepared for to pursue the purity of the worship here at Westminster is just to know our church government. It's important that churches, if these problems arise, ser- get, take, it, take, it, take it seriously and, and get wisdom and get help for the problems if a pastor has gone astray. Our pastors are all members of the Susquehanna Valley Presbytery of the PCA, and there is a committee of that presbytery a Presbyterian committee of that presbytery called the Ministry Relations Committee that is designed to help when these problems arise. But there is a consistent testimony from members of that committee that time and time again, people do not come soon enough. No one says anything soon enough. And congregations and sessions often stay silent until there's a huge scandal and something explosive happens and nothing can change. And it leads to more damage and more division and more hurt. So, so an application is pray for our pastors. Pray for the presbytery. Pray for the ministry relations committee in this work. Pray for the purity and peace of the PCA at large. These, these, these are hard things to wrestle with, but it's a reality, and it's worth wrestling with. The passage would warn us against the dangers of not doing it. Embarrassment. Worry about seeming judgmental. And the fear of just the bother of it all must not stop us or the church from acting. So this passage would offer a serious warning against minimizing any sort of wrongdoing or trying to engage in any sort of cover-up of these sorts of things. So, so this story uh, warns us about self-serving leaders in the church that pollute worship. And it does this in the portrait of Eli's son's high-handed contempt for God and in the portrait of Eli's complacency and inaction. So let us not take worship too lightly. Second, and more briefly, we overlook God's small provisions. And this passage would comfort us with God's quiet provisions in the, in the seeming midst of chaos 
and his provisions specifically for his promises. And so I want to look at three more portraits that this passage shows us. The portrait of a family of God, of the gift of God, and of the man of God. So in, in, in experiencing this comfort from this passage of God's quiet provision, we want to look at the family of God. Let's look at the family of God in Elkanah and Hannah. Elkanah, as Pastor York preached on several weeks ago, is a weak and imperfect man in many ways. He's, he's succumbed to the societal pressure, financial pressure, cultural pressures, and married two wives, which is against God's design. But what he has done is faithfully gone to worship every year. He has allowed his family to experience the cost and the inconvenience of worshiping God as God demands. And even in a less than ideal context in this tabernacle. And it's a small thing that we can miss, but there are intentional parallels set up in this passage between Eli's family and Elkanah's and between their children between Samuel versus Hophni and Phinehas. And and it seems like a small thing, but quiet faithfulness like Elkanah's and Hannah's is how God works, and he blesses it. Regular use of ordinary things, like prayer and attending worship services. God uses weak people who faithfully use ordinary things to provide for his people. And we see that their faithfulness provides much broader for God's people because next we see in the portrait of the gift of God. And by the gift of God, I mean Samuel himself. This gift that God has given Hannah, and as we're going to see throughout 1 Samuel, gives to God's people. God answers Hannah's prayer for a son. And through this barren woman, he simultaneously is preparing a righteous leader to replace the corrupt leadership of Eli. Samuel's place in the tabernacle seems to be a quiet, marginalized one, but God is working. Samuel's placed in contrast to everything else around him in the tabernacle. Look at verses 21 and 22. The young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. Here is a young man who has the potential to righteously serve and lead for years to come. Compared to verse 22. Eli was very old. And in this context, it is good news that this old man's years are numbered and he's on his way out. It's almost gone. And then again, we have verses 22 to 25 where we hear about wickedness growing and scandal growing. And then back again to verse 26 where we see again, now the young man Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with both the Lord and with man. As a leader, he'll be blessed by God and effective with people. These are just small snapshots of a small boy growing, but it holds a lot of hope for God's people. The tabernacle was clearly not a good place. And so this reminds us also that circumstances don't determine outcomes. Circumstances don't determine how people end up. The tabernacle was not a good place. Samuel was far from his parents, surrounded by sin and corruption, but God was faithful to him and had purposes to bless him and to use him to bless all Israel. That's just just an aside. That's comforting to Christian parents as well. God has made promises, and he loves our children more than we do. 
And he is more interested in bringing glory to himself by keeping his promises than we often are even in praying according to his promises. Finally, we see and are comforted by the portrait of a man of God. And this isn't much of a portrait. A couple words. All it says is, there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, no name. He's just a nameless man. And we know nothing about him. And that emphasizes that his task and his role here is merely to proclaim God's word. And that can also be a comfort to us. We don't need to be somebody or do anything worth remembering to have a positive impact by just being a faithful witness to what God has said, to what the Bible says. And here we also want to be comforted in the the message that this man of God delivers that God sees this corruption, this perversion, and this wickedness, and he will act. There is a promise here that God will stop the wicked abuses and perversions of Eli's sons, and that is good news. In any scenario, wicked leaders hurt people, and it's especially grievous amongst God's people. And this, this isn't a hypothetical either. People have been hurt by abusive pastors. Men and leaders who prey on the weak and take advantage of them financially, emotionally, or, or prey on their flock and take advantage sexually. And both of these things, we sadly know, is not a hypothetical. It's in the news. And the good news is that God sees it and he will judge it. He is wondrously and fearfully angry at this, and he will bring judgment even if it seems slow to us. It took decades and decades in this case to see it fully. If you're using an ESV uh, Bible with cross-references, you'll notice a little X after the behold in verse 31. And that would direct us to 1 Kings 2, 27, which says this, So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. We even have to turn multiple books of the Bible forward to see God's complete fulfillment to that promise of judgment. God sees such wickedness and will seek, and their and self-serving leaders' sin will find them out, and God will bring them to account, and he will bring righteousness to his house again. And that comes to our final point this evening. This passage reminds us of God's grand purpose because we so often forget it. God will have his worshipers and he will provide the leadership required. Look at verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And though we could look forward and see that this is in partial fulfillment uh, by the line of Zadok, uh, the priest. It can, it can in some ways be hard to grasp the full significance of this because we're jumping in to the middle of a story. 
the middle of a much larger story here in 1 Samuel. And in this short story of God's provision of Samuel as a prophet and as a priest, we're in the middle of a story that spans the entire Bible that we mentioned. All right, just go back a little bit to the book of Judges, where God's people are a mess. God's people are a mess here in Samuel. God's people are a mess in the book of Judges, time and time again, saying that they do what is right in their own eyes, and there's no king in the land. And we just see that it took one generation who forgot, who were with Joshua, to when the Lord's people go amok. Or, or, or we can go back further, right? This is a lot very similar to the people who experienced the Exodus. Go back to Exodus, where time and time again in the early chapters of Exodus, the Lord says, deliver this message to Pharaoh. Let my people go, that they may worship me. Let my people go, that they may serve me. And he takes them out of slavery and bondage and destroys their enemies. And they grumble and they complain and they rebel. So they don't even make it out of the wilderness alive after seeing God's great redemption. Go back all the way to the garden where God and man were meant to dwell together. And we see man's sin separating them. And Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves, hiding in the bushes, hiding in their fear and their shame, but God graciously pursues them and says, where are you? He knew. He pursues them and says, where are you? Or let's start at Samuel and go forward in the story. God raises up Samuel, a faithful judge and prophet, but his sons are corrupt. They pervert justice and take bribes. So God uses Samuel to bring kings, and Saul's a failure, and David, even as a man after God's own heart and as the inheritor of the glorious promises in 2 Samuel 7, is an adulterer and a murderer. And his sons? His sons commit rape, incest, murder, rebellion. And and then there's the, the syncretism of Solomon, who, who builds the glorious temple of God and builds a temple to a pagan god at the end of his life. And then there's the foolishness of Rehoboam, who, who splits God's people in two, and the story from there is just failure after failure after failure and seeming futility. Just one example, the weak but faithful man, Hezekiah, has Manasseh as a son, who embraces pagan worship to the degree that he sacrifices his son in the fire. And this is all part of the story of the Hebrew Scriptures, the First Testament, that should cause us to long, that should stir up in us a longing for something better, a longing for God's promises to be fulfilled, to long for a perfect priest. A perfect priest, a mediator for me and my sin, a mediator for us and our sin before a perfect holy God, someone to make atonement, a perfect prophet, completely free from self-interest and self-promotion, who tells us what God says who tells us the complete, pure truth, thus says the Lord. And oh, for a perfect king, 
Someone to rule us, to protect us, to destroy our enemies, to provide for us, to make us safe, and to rule us in perfect righteousness forever and ever and ever. We are to long and pine away for these things and shouldn't settle for being content or cynical or settle for anything less. And brothers and sisters, praise God's faithfulness that we can put a name to the satisfaction of this longing. We can put a name to this provision. The name of our precious Savior, Jesus. Jesus. Call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Jesus is the only one who truly fulfills the words of verse 35, being a priest forever. Consider what it says in Hebrews 7. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He is the atoning sacrifice. As it says in 1 Peter, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Citing Isaiah 53, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus is the priest. He is the Christ. He is the king. He is the sacrifice. Jesus is the man of God coming to sinful people, but differently because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And this man of God came to weak, sinful people with perverted, confused worship, like the woman at the well, in John chapter 4, and where he says this, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That is God's purpose, to be worshiped in spirit and in truth by perfectly holy people. And that's why he graciously sought Adam and Eve and said, where are you? That's why he raised up Samuel. And that's the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. Hallelujah. Now, what does this mean for us? We must all be aware of selfish priests. This is a very personal aspect of our life. We must all be aware of selfish priests because in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Christ, we are all consecrated as priests before the Lord, cleansed of our sin. As it says just a few verses earlier in 1 Peter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may 
Proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. As priests, we must proclaim God's glorious excellencies. And Peter goes on to say, we must live lives of such personal holiness and consistency in holiness that it makes unbelievers wonder as we proclaim it. And as priests, we must offer sacrifices. And what sacrifices do we offer? We dare not, like Hophni and Phinehas, steal God's sacrifices, contempt for God's sacrifices, or be complacent like Eli and just say, ah, it doesn't really matter. I'll just complain and rebuke. No, what are our sacrifices? Consider Romans 12, verse 1. After 11 chapters of explanation of God's great salvation, Paul makes a turn and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And this worship, this sacrifice, changes everything. How we relate to each other, how we spend our money, how we relate to the government. Paul lays it all out in the following chapters of Romans there. It changes everything. And we're supposed to live lives of holistic holiness. Our entire lives given entirely to God because of the mercy that he has shed on us and the consecration as priests in the blood of Christ. So we must be warned again on account of the mercies of Christ. Warned against being our own self-serving priests, being unfaithful and so unfruitful in his service. Our identity as God's priests should change everything, and if it doesn't, we're like the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, lukewarm, only fit to be spit out. Being clothed in righteousness in Christ for this new work in Christ, being anointed by the Spirit, being chosen by the Father, it makes us passionate for personal holiness It makes us work hard, pray hard for the purity and the peace of the church. But still, our hope is in none of these things. Our hope is not in having a changed life. Our hope is not in being better parents than Eli. Our hope is not to just be better at responding to sin. Our hope is not even in having or pursuing a pure church. Our hope is the purposes and plans of God to redeem for himself a people. And as a glorious revelation of his own merciful character, our hope is in the unchangeable character of a merciful God. And so... It is the verses right before that call to present our bodies as living sacrifice that Paul proclaims, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, in our weakness, uh, build us up so that you might get glory and we might be true worshipers of you in spirit and in truth. Amen.